0: Thanks, guys. Hello, everyone. morning. <laughs> Hello, Peter. Uh, welcome again to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, so if you're visiting for the first time, uh, that's who I am. And glad you guys are with us. Like Spencer said earlier, really glad to have you here. Uh, this is the portion of our gatherings uh, where we uh, give it over to uh, study the Scriptures and learning from God, hearing from God through His His words to us. And, we just started a series last week, and kind of starting this week, so if you weren't here last week, we set some ground uh, rules, so to speak, for um, the series. Uh, looking at Acts 17, the occasion of the letter of 1 Thessalonians, uh, by the way, is the book, but the occasion, the theological history of how this church began in the first century. Uh, so if, you wanna, if you've never read the book of Acts, I encourage you to do that for the background to a lot of what becomes these epistles or letters uh, that, are, uh, that are then historically contextual for us too. So we look at them and say, well, these are real churches being written to by real apostles, leaders, church leaders in the first century and uh, who had these baby churches forming them and they grew and had their own messes and issues and were themselves multiplying, and, but God speaks to them. And so that's a big big thing to understand too when you read your Bible is that especially with letters like this is that, and we said this last week, but the idea that we are the Thessalonians Uh, Their story is ours. God is not working in these special ways in the first century that He doesn't uh, today. The same Holy Spirit is at work. The same message, for sure, is being preached, embraced by many, rejected by many, and really uh, off the deep end, offensive to many, as we see. It's basically what happened in Acts 17 when Paul went to Macedonia to Thessalonica, and he preached, many believed, and a church was formed, many rejected, and, and many more were greatly uh, made jealous and offended and disturbed, it says, by the message, and an angry mob formed and pushed Paul and company out of the city. But God was good and faithful. He, he still worked in spite of all of the resistance to create this baby church, and, and the story goes on. But that's basically what we talked about last week. And then Paul has correspondence, as he does with a lot of his churches in different, he had different missionary journeys uh, in, in his uh, life in the first century, but uh, later when he was in Corinth, a different Greco-Roman port city of the day, uh, he wrote back to this church. He heard about them, he was encouraged by what he heard, thankful to God for what God was doing in their midst, wrote to kind of further teach them, further edify, pastor them from a distance, and uh, encourage. And also to correct some false doctrine that was starting to seep into the churches. That's a big thing, by the way, too. You see in every one of Paul's letters is that there's lots of good doctrine being espoused and grasped, but there's also this false doctrine seeping in. And it's one of the things that Paul is most acutely aware of, hates, and he has the strongest words for when that's starting to be entertained by the church. And so things about Jesus that just aren't true, things about uh, spirituality or or the will of God or whatever it might be, or in, in this letter's case, the second coming. There are many people saying, Jesus is already back. And it was really disturbing people in the church to say, well, I didn't know about this. That must mean I'm not saved. Or it was causing all kinds of issues in the church. And later in the letter, we'll come to that. But um, some false doctrines nonetheless. Just understand that false doctrines that are seeping into the church that Paul writes to, to kind of nip in the bud before it spreads uh, too, too far. But, but in general, understand that God speaks in history. He's a truth-speaking God who speaks to real churches in real time. And so their issues are ours. Maybe not all of them the exact same way, but the point is he has the same things to say to us, God does, through this uh, lens or this avenue of um, New Testament historical letters uh, to real churches. So so with that all said, that groundwork uh, laid afresh, let's just dive right into our series, which is uh, 1 Thessalonians 1. The passage today is verses 1 to 5a, which is basically Paul's greeting to the church uh, and his uh, initial uh, expressive of thanks to them for what God is doing in, in their midst. So let's start in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, for we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. So, a very standard greeting for Paul. Uh, this is a lot of the a lot of the things he does here. Is the way he starts some of his other letters in the New Testament. He identifies the sender himself, or in this case, uh, his team, so Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Then he identifies the recipients, the church in Thessalonica, and then greets them with a grace and peace, kind of a common uh, Christianized way that people greeted greeted each other in the day uh, with either a grace or, or a peace alone, but Paul kind of combines it and also Christianizes it in the sense that Christ gives grace and peace at the highest level. So Christians just did that, and we should too might feel, it's fine, it feels a little bit forced to just quote a verse like this to someone in context. Just do it. The spirit of this is to say, uh, we wish and we hope and we pray for grace and peace in Christ in people's lives. So it's a, pattern, it's a pattern to follow, whether it's your prayers or the actual way that you encourage and kind of gospel one another, yourself and others, your, your friends here at the church, those you're most closely walking with uh, in, in life uh, to be linked up with the grace of god in christ jesus his love for us and the peace he gives to us as well so he says that and then a statement of thanks which is also very uh, common for paul to thank god for what's happening in the particular church context whether it's a sentence or a paragraph or in this book's case three chapters worth of thanksgiving so this is unprecedented for paul Uh, He sometimes, again, has a shortened version of this, but basically what he's doing for three chapters is going back, gushing over them with this thanksgiving to God, ultimately celebrating what, you know, they're up to as well, but ultimately God who's behind all of their good works and just the fact that they believe it all, which will come to be a big part of what we're going to look at today. But Thanksgiving then is a huge theme. So if that's something you're studying topically at some point, go to 1 Thessalonians. And as we're doing this as a church, these next several weeks we'll be seeing Paul not just talk about thanks, thankfulness or thanksgiving, but come back to that a lot and just being like, I'm so thankful this is happening, that you believe this, that you're suffering deeply, but you're holding fast to your hope. So thankful for the love that you show each other. There are things going on here that are for us to emulate, for us to see as these are, these are standard kind of Christian living things that flow from our belief in the gospel. And Some of that, again, will come up today, but a lot in future. Uh, studies as well and sermons as well. So what I want to start with, though, is this first clause uh, in verse 1. That's uh, one of those, again, easy to read over things. I try to put one of those in all of my sermons because they're, at least for at least for me, things I all the time read over and don't give uh, proper attention to. But just the fact that Paul writes to churches. Uh, it, it is such a commonplace thing for and there's exceptions to that. Paul writes to Timothy, the individual, a couple of times in the New Testament, some of you are probably aware, uh, one of his associates is actually named here in uh, verse 1. But here, and most of the time, many other places, he's writing to communities, to churches. And that there's this co- strong communal aspect, then, of these letters. A lot more us's and, uh, and you's. And so just a, a few things here, quick things on that that we can extrapolate. Uh, grammatically, just understand that all of the you's flowing from this idea... Of the New Testament letters, when you see you, are in the second person plural. So just think, you all. Uh, P- Paul's saying, you all are doing a great job at this, or God is blessing you all in this capacity. He's among you all uh, in this way. So we, we lose that in English because we don't have, the, the Greek has a more obvious signifier right in uh, the language for this. But we lose this in English because we don't have an obvious signifier for that, that it's a second person plural and not second person singular. Other than y'all, I guess so, if you're a y'all person. Those of you from the South, just think y'all. If that's helpful, think you all or y'all when you read uh, these letters. So they're written to communicate with the idea that they should believe together the gospel, love together, evangelize together, and work out their salvation together. Very easy to individualize that. Not that that's always wrong to just read you into it, but so so much of the scriptures is given over, over to God speaking to groups. And communities, as though they were a team or a family or a gathering of sinners that have just been graciously, for only God knows why, saved from their sins (laughs) out of love, an expression of unconditional grace uh, to to them. So, so relatedly, then, uh, and furthermore, this is a little bit more of a bunny trail, but um, I'm sharing this in part because I've talked to some of you about this uh, recently, just come up. And so, maybe uh, it's just something God wants for us to know as a community and to remember for a lot of us, too is that you rarely see the Bible command isolation or it, or any kind of individualistic Christianity uh, whatsoever, even to the point where biblically uh, the solution to our problems a lot, a lot of times our problems, and you see this written to churches or groups, one of our problems is we're too individualistic, we're too alone. And so the solution is, go be with other Christians. It's a much more common command in the Bible to go be with other Christians than it is to go and be alone with Jesus. You don't actually see the latter command a lot. is that interesting? Not that that's wrong, just to be clear. No one's saying here it's wrong to be alone with Jesus. That's great. It's just not commanded much. It's not, we're not called into that nearly as much. The weight of ev- evidence is heavily tilted towards this constant call to be around Jesus with other Christians with other believers who love him and love you, learning from God through the conduit of the church or or other people. So it's so much the case that uh, we can say through the ideas that the church is called the new temple of God, the body of Christ, and that he speaks to us through Christ, who the the written scriptures testify to principally. We can say that there is no more holy or sacred place on earth than a gathering of Christians with open Bibles before them. There's no more sacred or holy place on earth, and there are some, but no more that uh, than than Christians who are gathered together in community with open Bibles before them, large or small, formal or informal. There's no more holy place because Christ has said, there's a group of Christians I'm especially present, and that's my temple. Think like Old Testament, if you guys know are familiar with this. In the Old Testament, the temple was this holy, sacred ground that needed to be just carefully approached, otherwise, people would just die in the presence of God's holy righteousness. And so that 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 now is that language is transferred onto the church, where you and I are gathered right here, not this building, but the fact that we many, most of us are Christians, gathered together with an open Bible. This is the new temple of God's presence. It's where he resides primarily, where he speaks primarily. So if that's the case, what's more holy than that? What's more sacred than than that? And though there are things, places where God does dwell and ways he can speak to us, like, for example, through creation, there's no more holy or sacred place on earth than a gathering of believers hearing from God through the Scriptures. Also think about it this way. uh, God is triune. God God in himself, Christians believe that God is a trinity, not not a Unitarian idea, but that he's one, but exists eternally in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So a lot to say about that. We're not going to say today. It's a paradox. Difficult to understand. But the, one of the kind of sub-doctrines of that is to understand that God forever has existed in community with himself. He's not a singular entity, but a triune one who has forever past, present, and forever future will in himself be relational and in community. So because of that, logically flowing from that, it would be inconsistent with who God is to call us into individualistic spirituality. It would would be to say, God would say, I'm calling you into something that I am not because I am in relationship with myself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, and other religions do that. The other religions, a big mantra of many other, there are exceptions to this, but many other religions are to be individualistic pursuers of God, But the Christian, the Christian idea is that God calls us into community with, uh, with ourselves. So if you ever hear that uh, in whether your mind or just feel that inkling in uh, your soul that God really wants me to be alone with him, just be careful with that. It could be God. That could be him saying that. Obviously, it's not wrong. But if you're predominantly hearing that voice in your mind over and over and over again, God wants me to be alone with him. It is not his voice. It's much more likely the voice of the devil than it is the voice of God. It's good, don't get, don't get me wrong, but too much of that is, is out of balance with how the scripture commands us. Constantly is the call to be in church, to hear in church gatherings, to learn, to worship, to evangelize, to love together, uh, not not alone. So Paul writes then here in, in verse one and two, basically to say to the church, he's saying to the gathered church of God in Christ Jesus that happens to live in Thessalonica, and he goes on in verse two and starts gushing thanks out uh, to them, which again will be kind of uh, at least a main, at least a subtopic if not a main topic of the rest of our uh, several weeks here going uh, for a couple of months because he's he spends so much time doing it. But in verse two he starts. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So what I want to do then, the rest of our morning here, is uh, divide this in two parts. Look at thankfulness in the way that Paul's talking about it, but from two angles. One, thankful to whom, and not just assume anything here, thankful to whom. And second, thankful for what? Because he gets, he gets broad and specific here with things that he's thankful, thankful for. So thankful to whom, we'll start and move into more of the what, they do kind of overlap, and you'll see the relationship here as we go, hopefully. All right, but first, thankful to So thankfulness implies another party has done something for you, right, or, or others. No one's ever thankful to themselves for something they have, they have done. So, I, you know, I don't say to myself after I mow the lawn and feel like I do a good job, you know, thanks, Chris, for mowing the lawn after I mow the lawn, and, oh, you're welcome, Chris, uh, anytime, oh, okay, awesome, thanks, and then kind of go on. I'd be psychotic, right? I mean, you'd be like, "What? What the heck's going on there?" Rather, I'd say, you know, "Thank you for mowing my lawn to whoever mowed." This actually happened uh, two years ago, I think, three years ago. Someone mowed our lawn. We were on vacation. Never found out who did that. So, fess up, whoever did that from Hiawatha. Thank you for doing that. So, I'd say thank you to that person for serving, for for them doing something for Alith and I, um, just out of generosity, like like that. So, the question is then, who's being thanked here? Uh, right? Not not himself, Paul's not thanking himself for pastoring them, for being the initial evangelist or missionary type that went to bring the gospel to them, nor is he thanking them for living such great lives, though he does celebrate some aspects of that later too, which we'll even see some of today. But rather, verse 2 is clear, right? We give thanks to God always, always. It's a key word there. In a never-ceasing manner, God is thanked for things happening in that church. So not Half, not three quarters, not parts. Always God is thanked for everything going on in, in the church is how we should, how we should uh, read that. The question then follows is why, right? And, and because, again, the answer is he's the primary mover, the only real mover here behind all the good that's occurring. He saved people. But don't miss the simple and obvious. He has saved people from their sins, people, the people of Thessalonica who have responded, God's responsible for that. And as we'll see here in a second, he's birthed, God has birthed a ton of good works in them as well, and, that, and that's why thankfulness becomes such a premier Christian virtue. One of the most important Christian virtues that you see throughout the scriptures is thankfulness, and why it's a, a gospel thing, why, why it's so closely related to God saving by grace, not us by our own moral efforts. Thankfulness is inextricably tied to that idea because Christians believe that in Christ, God has done everything for them and they themselves have have done nothing. Flowing from Jesus' words for just one of many examples in John 15 when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says, the Son of God, apart from me, you can do nothing. And he's talking about, Everything, right? He's not saying some things. Apart from me, nothing can be done. <laughs> in, he's, in context, he's talking about with this agrarian metaphor how he's the vine and we're the branches. We can't bear fruit unless the vine is tapped into the ground to get nutrients and water. He's the source of life. He's the source of good works. He's the source of everything good in our life. And so nothing can be done that's good apart from Jesus Christ. So isn't some, again, it's, it's, an, it's all, it's exclusive, it's, universal, it's a universal kind of statement here. G.K. Beale says on this idea in his commentary, he says the fact that Paul thanks God, not the readers, not the Thessalonians, for their salvation shows that they contributed nothing to accomplishing their own salvation, but they that they were the object of an unconditional divine act. So again, and think about this: Paul never says to the church. Uh, anywhere, in this letter or elsewhere, he never says the words, thank you so much, church, for responding to my message. Isn't that interesting? It never comes up. Thank you so much, church, for responding to my message so well. He thanks people for things, for sure. It's not wrong to do that, but as it pertains to salvation, he never says, thank you for just giving me the time and for responding so well. Rather, God. He thanks God for that. So it's a striking thing to to look at what's said but what's not said in a complimentary manner and say, well, he didn't do that because behind the curtains, they're not really responsible for their salvation. Only God is. That's why he's thanking God. Thank you that these conversions happened, God. Not thank you to the church. Thank you, God, that they happened at all. Thank you that there's, there's a church here at all. Thank you that not everybody drove me out of the city in that angry mob, but some people responded, thank you, God, that that's the case. See, we only thank people who are responsible for it, right? It's not God and Thessalonians, it's only God. Thanks be to God that you are saved. Thanks be to God that you exist. Thanks be to God that you responded. Because he not only made something and did something in the world through his son to be thankful for, but he moved in our lives to respond to it at the same time. So again, belief in grace, undeserved merit, the fact that God gives everything and we give nothing back, that he's died for our sins, we haven't died for for anything, but God's died for us, is inextricably connected to the practice of thankfulness. They're inextricably tied together. Uh, And you could flip that around too, like I said, and kind of was getting at before. uh, If you flip that around, the idea of working out our salvation alone on our own strength, the religious idea, the works-based narrative, we say, hear a lot the idea that that we approach god or climb up to him or climb the mountain or ladder or get to him based on some kind of inherent moral effort whether that's religious moralism or whether it's just this idea that we have that i'm a little more prone to understanding the gospel myself than other people are When when i think that like i found that in life i'm more able to understand and articulate who christ is what the gospel is and so it's it's a there's a piece of truth in there that 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 dictates how I understand my relationship to God, that, that I must have figured him out a little bit. Whatever side of it is, if, we, if that's our story or our narrative, it's going to breed the opposite of thankfulness, unthankfulness. Because we don't, again, going back to the lawn mowing illustration, we don't thank people for what we've done, right? So if we think that we've done something, no matter how small, the thankfulness kind of level just kind of goes, just drops very quickly. We might have a little bit of thankfulness, for something God's done, but it's much less thankfulness than we would otherwise have if we just believed that God saved us entirely from our sins by his grace. So this is actually a really important, was that me? Okay, No? <laughs> that sounded like me. All right, sorry for what that was. Okay, uh, if you believe then in, in these things, this is your narrative, that's kind of where you'll end up uh, on the gospel side, you'll, you'll breed thankfulness, but the other side will be, we'll be flipped. But what's really helpful here is to remember, too, that God wants us to be thankful. There's a, there's a very common uh, command in the New Testament for thankfulness. Be thankful. That actually comes up in this letter a lot. It actually, in chapter 5, says, one of the things God wills for your life. I know some of you are asking this, and you always will. It's a good question. I, I ask this all the time. What is the will of God for my life? What does he want? What does he want you to do today? I want you to five years. Bible's clear. One of the things, be thankful. Be thankful. But what's cool about this is God is not making, making thankful people, creating thankful people in the world simply by saying be thankful. He's rather coming into the world through his son and dying for them so that they have something to be thankful for and showing them how little they have to give and how much God has to give, how generous he is, how amazingly loving he is at, uh, at the cross. So, when you see that command, be thankful, always read that in context. Paul's never just writing to a church saying, I want you to be more thankful, so be thankful, period, and then sends it off. He's always embedding the, the idea of being thankful in the fact that Christ has died for their sins and he loves them. In, in and through that, be, be, that he's found them, that he's chosen them in love. In and through that, be, uh, be thankful. And So one of the things about this Narrative on the bottom, then, one of the dangers here with religion, with a works-based righteousness idea that it's moralism that gets us into heaven or close to God is that it it leads us away from doing what the Bible, what God wants us to do, and that is being thankful. You see the logic there and and the connection? If we're supposed to be thankful, religion doesn't get us there. The only thing that gets us to what the Bible wants us to do, what God wants us to do, is by focusing and honing in on the cross. And realizing it's by grace we're saved. That he's done more and we've done less. So thankfulness goes up, 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 up throughout our lives as we start to realize that more and more and more. So this then moves into the second piece here, and I've kind of already talked a bit about it. I'll recap some things from the vantage point of verses 4 and 5. But the first part, again, was thankful to whom? And the second part is thankful for what specifically? There's two, there's two things, a general and a specific, but the general is just the fact that they're saved, right? Verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So what this is saying here, uh, a number of things, loaded a couple of verses, but what this is basically saying is It's possible to hear and not perceive. It's possible to hear the words, but not take it in with full conviction. It's possible to understand the facts, but not let the power of God through that actually change our lives and change our souls, right? Because it's not, and the words are good, so he's not saying not words, he's saying not just in word, but in power and with the Holy Spirit's work and with full full conviction. So again, to say in the Holy Spirit is to say in God it came to you with God's presence and his help and his power, it's to say again, you can't and I can't convert, we can't convert ourselves. Because it can come to us in words, but unless the Holy Spirit's in those words and choosing, loving, making it matter, we won't be saved. This is one of those very frightening uh, passages. You see this kind of come up narratively as well, all throughout the Old Testament, Jesus' ministry narratively. Here it is prepositionally, the idea that some of you, maybe even many of you in this room, have heard with words, but you haven't heard through the Holy Spirit, you haven't let it take over with full power or conviction yet. It's just an idea. You understand all the right answers, you understand it in word, but can you say this, out? this is what's true about the Thessalonian church. Is this, honestly, just check your heart, is this true about you today? I don't care what your story is, your past, what about right now? Is it true that the words of the gospel have come in Holy Spirit power to convict you of sin, to make it matter, to make it personal, to make you rely on it entirely, to make you believe amidst adversity, which is what's kind of what's happening too here in the Thessalonian church. And we'll talk about some more things too here as well, but it's just a great initial litmus test to make us realize, okay, well, I've heard this before. Some of you have heard it a lot. Has it taken over your heart? Has, you know, if Paul was here, or can you say this about other people here in the room too, that you're celebrating conversions because... It wasn't just about words for those people or this person. It was about power, Holy Spirit, and full conviction about the truth themselves. So not something we can manufacture. It's actually why, you know, we have some baptisms today here at, like Spencer said at 115. So when you have baptisms or we see conversions happen here at Hiawatha or anywhere, you know, we, we, don't, we don't say well done to the evangelist nor do we ultimately say congratulations to the convert or the baptizee, but rather praise God, because God made it possible. And if you've been in ministry at all long, I mean, for any length of time, and you're working for conversions on a formal or informal level, you're praying for people, family members, neighbors, friends to be saved, you know how hard it is and how rare sometimes that can be. And so when it happens, you fall on your face and you rejoice and you just say, thank you for making my pathetic sermon somehow matter my pathetic evangelistic appeal, my overly simplified explanation of what happened on the cross, happen and take root in conviction in the holy spirit and in power. See, God has to save. He uses the words, but unless he uses them, it falls flat. So we hear but don't actually perceive what we're what we're hearing. So we rejoice. Now, uh, to go back to what I was saying before about you know, how do you, if God's choosing, if God's making things matter, if the Holy Spirit has to be at work, we can go to, you know, one of two conclusions, or actually, uh, well, (laughs) it's actually two of several, but anyway, we'll talk about two. Uh, Two conclusions here that are very easy to go to, logically, that I want to address. Some of you guys were here a few weeks ago when we talked about uh, predestination, topically, is one of our big questions. Why does the Bible talk about predestination? How, and in what sense does God predestine some to be saved? Or, as we say, as we see here, kind of a synonymous word for it, the idea of God choosing, Uh, the idea of God choosing some, choosing implies some, because not all are saved, and so how does that work? I'm not going to talk all about that here today, because it's way, it's a huge bunny trail, I'd love to, but we have a sermon online that you can access in our archives, and our website, or just talk to me and Spencer, we'd love to take you out for coffee and talk more about that, hear what you think, and just uh, chat about it, but a couple of quick things though, you know, Bunny trails we can take logically that aren't necessarily uh, helpful. The one is the, the defeatist approach. And so to just address that, all that we're saying here about God choosing is not defeatist biblically. In other words, the point here is not to think, well, if God just chooses us at will, why should we even try to respond to him or call anyone to him? If this is how God's really saving people, Why should we even try uh, to evangelize or as it pertains to our salvation, why should we try to respond? Won't he just cause that to happen? Bible never approaches the matter this way. It takes ourselves way too far out of the equation, uh, again, in a way that the Bible never does. But rather, what this is saying is when we choose Christ, so if you're a Christian, think about that moment or that season. When you choose Jesus Christ, when you respond to the fact that he died for your sins and rose again, you trust in that for eternal life. What this is saying is, verse 4, the idea of God choosing us, is what's happening behind the curtains, so to speak. And so our faith, from that point forward, is built on a strong foundation of God chose me before I chose him, not the weak, shifting, unsure foundation of I chose him alone. So this is partly why I think that, that Paul wants to link love and choice here. He wants, he wants a strong, firm, happy, rooted, just deep foundation in security and security in people's salvation. So he uses the word chosen, but also loved. Because love is a choice, right? Love is a choice to, to choose someone, to say, I'm attracted to that person on every level. I'm going to choose to move towards that person. Uh, love is a choice to sacrifice, to put someone else first. It's an action word. And so this is why I think Paul says, brothers, Loved by God, I, we know that he's chosen you because love and choice go together. It's to, it's to say then that God looked at you in your distress and said, I'm choosing them unto salvation. Specifically, individually, I'm going after them. Love and a much, sure, much more sure foundation right? than just the idea alone that it's about us responding to God without his help on any level. That's a much less sure footing to live our, live our lives on because how can we ever be sure of that? We can be sure of God's activity, but much less so our our own. So it's not defeatist, that's the first thing. Second thing is, nor is this unverifiable. So kind of like I was skirting earlier, this is a very, very verifiable thing. So in other words, we shouldn't think, if God chooses us and makes the gospel come to us in power, how do we ever know that's truly happened? It's a great question. A lot of you guys have asked me this before, too. Uh, We've talked about this. It's a great question. If if God is choosing um, and making the gospel come to us in power by the Holy Spirit, how do we ever know if we're one of his chosen? So what, what Paul is saying here, though, is, you know, philosophically, that's one matter, but theologically, this is, we can verify this. It looks like belief. It looks like response to the message. It looks like belief in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. It looks like joy amidst adversity. It looks like love for other Christians, and it looks like hope so a pretty simple list actually which I'll come back to in a minute but Paul's just saying I know you've been chosen because you've responded and you're full of love you're full of hope and your 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 faith is working itself out in love and good deeds and that flows from your greater belief and so that's how that's how we know you can know then and I can know we can know if we're predestined we don't have to guess at that we can know if we're chosen we can know if we're pursued by God because the gospel has come to us in the first place, but then in the second place it comes in power and creates us uh, for a life of love love and good deeds. So that's kind of where we turn now. So he specifically highlights those things and is thankful not just for their general salvation, but for their work of faith and their labor of love, he says, and their steadfastness of hope. So kind of three things that in some ways, I think are kind of synonymous, so when you see that phrase in your Bible, don't necessarily think, ooh, that's kind of a neat for your teacher type, a neat three-part outline or something. Kind of is, but it's not really meant to be, you know, this really neatly demarcated things. Uh, but with that said, let me just define these because they're a little bit ambiguous. Work of faith uh, means the ongoing hard work of maintaining faith or trust in the gospel. So it's a labor of faith. It's, it takes hard work to believe it's not about you. It also means a lifestyle of good works that flow from our faith and that point to the Son of God's work on our behalf. Labor of love is is related to this in that it refers to the love that the church has for one another. So brotherly love or Christian to Christian love. And steadfastness of hope uh, refers to the confidence that we're walking out of a long, dark tunnel and every day we're several steps closer to that light. No matter how bad things are, those things are defeated enemies in our on borrowed time. So faith, hope, and love. So work of faith, love for all people, uh, Christian or not, but especially other Christians in the context of the church, and talk about that too, but, but also hope. And hope here, by the way, too, is not, we can define it this way worldly sometimes where we're kind of like, there's tons of you know, contrary evidence to support uh, you know, what I, what I want to believe, but I'm going to kind of cross my fingers and just hope it's true anyway. It's not really the hope the Bible talks about. The hope the Bible talks about is you know, in the middle of winter when the nights are 16 hours long, we have hope the sun's going to rise. We know it's going to rise. I don't care how long the night is, we know it's going to rise. That's the hope we have as Christians, that it's, it's sure, it's, it's steadfast, it's grounded. We have hope that this very sure thing's going to occur. Christ will return and all suffering will be vanquished uh, one, one day. So, and the church is steadfast in that as evidence that they believe in the right Christ and his promises. So again, Paul, Paul's saying here, one last thing here on, on these three specific matters that I want to make sure you're seeing. And that is, uh, when Paul is thanking, thanking God for all of this, this is part of it. He's saying, thank you, God, that you saved the Thessalonians and thank you that they love each other this is like very commonplace. If you've read the New Testament before, you've read this a hundred times, but have you thought about that? Thank you, God, that they love each other. Not thank you, Thess- Thessalonians, that you love each other. It's not always wrong to say that or it's not always wrong you give a pat on the back to people who are loving each other well. That's fine. But ultimately, at least here, he's saying thank you, God, that love exists. It's from you. Thank you that hope exists. It's from you. Where does that come from? Apart from God. Thank you, God, that they're working out their faith. They're, they're trying to point to the fact that Christ was obedient to God the Father for us and, and, and embody that, demonstrate that by working out their salvation with fear and uh, trembling because God is at work in them, Philippians 2 says. So, so it's really key to understand. It's flowing grammatically here. It's not its own sentence. It's flowing from the idea of thanks be to God always for all of you for we know he's chosen you. We know that you're loved by him and we're thankful that we're seeing all of these good deeds. All these good works happen as well. God, thank you that, that that's happening, meaning, I, again, i.e., you're the cause of it. Otherwise, why in the world would you thank God? Why in the world would you thank him? Paul is off his rocker completely uh, if he's theologically and otherwise, if he's thanking God for something he didn't do, right? So he's the ultimate mover and causer behind all of, all of these things. Not the lone moral traits of the church, somehow disconnected from the Spirit's work. That's not what's being talked about here, but rather, uh, thanks be to God, who through His Spirit is wooing us to faith and to love and in good deeds. So, a few things here uh, to wrap up. Uh, in conclusion, the, the question we started with is the true source of thankfulness. Uh, it's Jesus and His amazing hellbound race interrupting grace. Rejoice in this. This is the first and foremost thing we need to do today, whether it's the millionth time or the first time for some of you today. Maybe you never rejoiced in the gospel. It's been words. You've heard the gospel in words, but it's never come to you in power. It's never been this personal, God cares about me in this. God loves me in this. I truly am forgiven in this. He saved me in and through this. This is how God forgives. He he becomes like us and dies as one of us. He takes our sin and judgment for all the bad things we've ever done on himself. He absorbs it. He's called the, the Passover lamb for a reason. Like in the Old Testament, when God saw the Passover lamb's blood, he passed over the Israelites. In, in, in the same way, he is this new, in the New Testament, from, to use its words, he is the ultimate Passover lamb. He's deterring God's wrath. He's deterring judgment. He's absorbing it for us, for you. And it's not just a transaction, it's love. It's deep, 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 sacrificial love that led God uh, to become a human being in the first place but ultimately to go to go there and so understand that if you're a Christian the idea the message came to you not just in the word but in the spirit and we talked about this last week I <clears throat> kind of hinted this here uh, but we re- referenced Paul uh, in his ministry the apostle Paul before he was a Christian in Acts 9 he was murdering Christians and tearing families apart, imprisoning Christians, and doing all the name, all in the name of kind of misrepresented and falsely directed zeal for God. But nonetheless, he's murdering Christians, and then when he's on the way to do it again on the road to Damascus, on the way to murder more believers and to interrupt the ministry of the church on a variety of ways, Christ interrupted him. He knocked him on his back and said, why are you persecuting me? and express expressed love for him, patience. He doesn't kill him in that moment. He lets him live and says, I'm going to call you into a ministry of, of service and sacrifice. You're going to be my messenger now. It's Genius that God would do this, right? Let's take the Christian murderer, convert him, show him that everything he believed about the church was wrong, show patience and love to him, save him from his sins, point him to the cross, lead him out in the desert for a while to learn about me and in all of this and spend years and years learning the old testament how it points to Jesus then send him off and all these missionary journeys will be beat up and shipwrecked and have all kinds of concern for the church but in all of that god gets fame right cuz he, he proves that it's true to take the guy that's way over here and send him way over here it's proof that it's true but it's also proof that this is all of our stories all of us are sprinting unto sin all of us are sprinting unto hell all of us are running to that next moment of sin, whatever that might be, when Christ finds us on that road and shows himself to us. If you're a Christian, that's your story too. He's found you sprinting to hell and he said no more. He's effectively tackled you like a, like a friend might tackle you as you're running t- to the edge of a cliff. You don't realize it, but a good friend tackles you in love and at first you say, what are you doing? Get off me. You know, but then you realize how much you're thankful for that act of love and that interruption of your sprint. That's our stories. We're not looking for him. Isn't it amazing that this is true for you? I don't care what what it felt like. You could have been feeling like you were looking for him, but ultimately behind the curtains, he was looking for you. And he interrupted your life at some point and showed you grace, and you responded, just like Paul. And so to see it that way and not, you know, I... My narrative was more, uh, I was walking on a good moral path of righteousness towards God, and God said, wow, that person's pretty cool, I'm going to talk to him. It, 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 see, if, if that's your narrative, you will be a much less thankful, I mean, aside from it just being flat out wrong, it doesn't ever happen, you won't be thankful. You'll be less thankful, at least, if not just not at all thankful, because you'll think, well, I'm decent, I found God, I climbed the mountain. But if we're like Paul on the road to Damascus interrupted, not even looking for him, but God says, now I'm saving you because I love you deeply. I'm bringing the, the message of the cross in a personal manner to matter to you right now. That's what he's done. That's how much he thinks of you. And if that's true, how can you lose it? See, your love, this is what we should say to each other, brothers, sisters, loved by God, we know he's chosen you. We know he's been at work in your life. We know that he's He's found you on that road that you were sprinting on to hell, and he's interrupted because we've seen you respond to the gospel. We know that you're loved in that. So, I mean, make that a part, whether you quote this verse or whether you paraphrase that, speak that to your soul. Speak that to other people you know in the church. We need this kind of encouragement. We for, you guys and I will all forget this the second we sing that last note in the song. We'll forget this when we walk out. We'll live more in that moral righteousness narrative, right? Even if you don't believe it, functionally we always veer to that side of the path and we need this kind of course correcting, oh no, that's not what God does in the Bible. When do you ever see that? When is that ever portrayed as truth? Rather we see Paul running to hell and Jesus interrupting him and saying, no, now's the moment where I turn you around because I love you. I love you, I love you. Here's what I've done for you. Believe in me, rest in me, find joy in me. Come to me and, and rest those who are weary and burdened and I will give you soul rest. And I will lead you onto and, and to pastures, green pastures, into and and to rivers of life uh, for, for everlasting life. And so that's his invitation, invitation to us. So which narrative do you have is the question. As it relates to thanksgiving then, uh, which, which side is it? If it's more that I'm climbing the mountain of God's presence in a kind of Buddhist-seeking nirvana kind of way and I've found Jesus or... It's I'm sprinting to hell, but Jesus found me. That will greatly dictate how thankful you are as people. This will not make you very thankful, but again, this will make you much more thankful and joyful and much more likely to persevere in the faith the rest of your life. That's the first thing. Uh, Second, then, related here um, is be thankful. Again, for, and and this is something that um, it can be a command because of grace. So it is. Uh, This is something that the Thessalonians, well, Paul's embodying actually, and and they will later, but be thankful for every good work you've ever done and for others' salvation. It's kind of a neat byproduct, by the way, too, of when you believe all of this and and espouse this and really make this a part of what the center of your spirituality is, the way you work at the world, look at the world, it protects you from a lot of uh, undesirable things as well, like um, envy and contempt and hatred and Christian competitiveness. Because if you look at someone else, and they're really ahead of you in the faith, if they're uh, working harder than you, if they know more about the Bible than you, if they're more generous than you, if they've seen more conversions than you, if you don't believe that all of that was a gift of God for them, just graciously given, you'll feel lesser about yourself, right? You'll have more envy over them. You'll have more jealousy for them, you probably just wouldn't want to be around them because you don't like to feel, who likes to feel bad about themselves, right? I just feel like whenever I'm around this person, they're just better than, I, better than I am. But if everything's given, all good works are given, you'll rejoice. Say, well, God just decided to do that in this person's life. And He's doing things in my life. And it's not about being saved through those things anyway. I've been saved by Jesus alone. So I'm free to be lesser than someone else. I'm free to lose the debates. I'm free to not be as effective in things because God loves me. He's chosen me, saved by grace, not, not by works. And so the only way to be thankful for others is the gospel. In other words, the only way for it to create this kind of robust thankfulness for what God is doing in other people's lives is to be, know that you're saved by grace, not, not by works. And that all of their works, and the, and the same thing for them, all of their works, including their salvation, was not based on anything that they ever did, just God's loving, uh, righteous, truth-filled choice. Third, uh, test yourself to see whether you are in the faith, belief, uh, love, and hope. Uh, Just three things there that the Bible talks a lot about here included. And this is actually a biblical phrase too. At the end of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. He says, test yourself to a church, to Christians, to see whether or not you're truly in the faith, which is really interesting to end your letter that way, you know, like Debbie Downer, but you just always encouraging things for the church, and then says, well, but some of you might actually be Christians. <laughs> so test yourself. And, and three of the main kind of litmus tests there for, for uh, ensuring, verifying that you are, in fact, a chosen one of God, that you have believed the right gospel is to look at your belief. What are you trusting in? Are you believing the right gospel? What happened on the cross? Was Jesus really God? Did he die for you in your place? Do you trust in that alone? Second is love. Do you love other Christians? Uh, 1 John in the, in the New Testament is a great book on this. i sure you'd read that sometime. It actually says, I think in chapter 4, verse 20, it says if a, if a Christian claims to, to be a Christian, to be in Christ, saved by him, but does not love other Christians, doesn't love the church, He's a liar. In other words, the Bible says it's impossible to be a Christian and to not love other, other Christians because they're, they're the body of Christ. And so you're really saying by not loving Christians, you're not loving Jesus because He's so much in them. So, great litmus test: Do you love other Christians uh, well? It's a sign that only comes from Jesus. Must mean He's inside of you. Means you're you're saved. And then then hope again as well, which uh, again, very interesting that the Bible so frequently states this is a mark of true Christianity. Like, how do you know you're a Christian? Are you hoping for the future? Well, are you hoping for his return? When when you see that in another person, do you say, that's a believer? Because they're really hoping for Christ's second coming and hoping for a good uh, future where all suffering, pain, and death will be vanquished? Longing for him, wanting to be with the one who found you. I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? This is one of those things where the gospel is the only thing that creates us, creates that longing in us to see our Savior. If you think you're saved by what you do, you don't want Christ to come back. You've got work to do, right? You've got, you've got more, more good deeds to do, more things to accomplish, more checks to check off on. You don't want to see Christ. He's going to come as judge. But if you know he saved you through the cross, he's chosen you, you want to see him. So hope, that looks like longing for the return of Christ, is a mark of um, of true belief as well. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that, you know, every, every time you don't love other Christians well, you're wrestling with church, or you have a hopeless day, or you doubt some things about some doctrines of Christ or whatever. It doesn't mean that you're instantly not saved. Don't hear that. It just means that these things, if they form a pattern, and they're extreme, they're prolonged. If you're paralyzed by hopelessness, for months and months and months and months, for example, the question could be, well, who are you really trusting in? Who is your savior? Who is Christ to you? Do you believe his promises? Uh, if you don't love the church at all, this is a question of why. Has the, have you not rested in the fact that you've been loved by God to the uttermost? Has it not impacted you and, and led you into community? Or the gospel itself could go into that too, but, but love and hope and, and belief in the right, right directions in general are, are verifiable, indicators of to see whether or not we are in the faith and ultimately thank god for that if we have it because it's from him so last then just an encouragement to all of you especially if you're a christian uh is well actually only if you are Uh, if you're not come to jesus and then this is true this is something to to hear for you but if you're a christian work out your salvation since god is at work in you love the lord and the church love the church and abound in hope because you have you're walking out of that dark tunnel but there is that light. and some of you need to hear that more than others of you today. Abound in hope, abound in hope, abound in hope. Christ is returning and all of your m- many enemies that you wrestle with uh, today, whatever level, is it's, it is a defeated enemy. Christ promises us that. He says you have all the hope in the world for things to, to be increasingly, if not increasingly better throughout this life, ultimately better at the end of this life or when Jesus returns to, to save us. So, It's this call really here to, in this way, and we'll talk more about this in the series and actually come right back to this probably next week. It's kind of mid-sentence, but great thing to emulate the Thessalonians on here is, uh, and Paul, to be robustly thankful, to rejoice in the God of our salvation and to work out our faith uh, in a way, live out of the fact that you're forgiven by how well you love other Christians and have a radical kind of hope the world just doesn't have. Because um, the world is watching you. I, I've heard of that. I've seen that in my life. Non-Christians are watching you in terms of how you respond to adversity. I saw a thing actually written, I think it was by a non-Christian actually, the other day, uh, where he was just saying, uh, just observing the Christians he knows uh, are not really into fear. It's not quite their thing. Uh, fear is not really a big thing for Christians, right? Why do we fear? But the question is, is that true for you? And The non-Christians in your life, they look at you and see you as not a very fear-filled individual. Not that we don't fear at all, but basically it's not really a big deal for believers. We don't have to fear. Is that part of your narrative? So, I mean, all, all these things are important. They're markers, they're indicators, they're gifts of the Spirit, but they're also things that tell the world uh, who our God is and what our hope is and points them there as well. So you pray for us and we'll close. God, thanks so much uh, for your grace in the gospel of Christ and for all of these whispers and explicit statements of what the good news of Jesus Christ is in First Thessalonians 1, 1 to 5, how you've loved us, how you've called us into community with other saved individuals away from the world, how you've chosen, how you've given, the, given us the gifts of work and of love and of hope. And uh, God, I pray that uh, more of that would be present in our lives, individually, especially uh, communally. God, you're the giver of all that. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for interrupting our life as we were on a hellbound race for uh, giving us the gift of your son, the gift of salvation, and the gift of all of our good works. Uh, You alone, as we've seen here in today's passage, are the one to thank for that. Uh, Not any other person, angel, philosophical way of thinking, but the God of all good works who dispenses them freely as he wills to those who trust in him. In Jesus alone, we pray. Amen.